Well, once again, welcome. Um, my name is Derek. I'm the pastor here. If I haven't met you, I'd, I'd love to. You can come find me afterwards. You know, one of the games that I like to play the most is that game um, where you're on a deserted island and, of course, the deserted island has a big screen television and a DVD player. You know, and it's like, which five movies would you take with you on the deserted island? like that game? If you've ever played that game, you know there's always kind of that that one guy in the game who cheats and says something like, I'll take Star Wars, but like all of Star Wars, right? And counts it as one movie. Or I'll take Breaking Bad, even though it's like 80 shows. You know that guy. You are that guy, okay? Just, um, it's cheating. Jesus is asked in this passage that we're about to read, What's the most important commandment? And the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the scribes, the rabbis at the time, they had come up with this list of like 613, not like, exactly, 613 individual requirements spelled out in God's Word. Here's the stuff you do, here's the stuff you don't do. And they love to get together and play the game, which ones are the most important? And so they ask Jesus, which is the most important? And guess what happens? Jesus basically cheats. And he takes two. And not only does he take two, what he says is the most important command is not as much a law as it is a love. Love God and love your neighbor. We're actually going to divide this pretty short passage up into two weeks. We're going to talk about what it means to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength today. And then in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about what it's like to love our neighbors. So if you've got your Bible, open it up to the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 12. It is also printed for you in your bulletin. I'm starting in verse 28. Listen now as I read from God's Word. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for this call to love you. For some of us that comes really easily. For some of us it doesn't. Lord, will you show us what it means to, to love you with all that we are? Will you remind us today that it is your love first for us that stimulates our love for you? That the foundation of all that we do in return is the love and the grace and the mercy that you have poured out on us through Jesus Christ? Lord, we ask that that would drive us, that it would change us, that we might respond. We ask that you would work in our hearts now. And Lord, may the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing in all that we do today. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'm going to ask you to envision two different people. Now, the first person is your boss. This is the person who uh, oversees you at work. This is the person who writes your checks and pays you at the end of the day. 
When you have done a day's work, this is the person who tells you, good job, you're finished, here's your reward. You could describe that kind of interaction, I work for you, you pay me for that work, you describe that kind of interaction as a transactional interaction. It is interaction based on transaction. Even if your boss is really wonderful, even if you really like your boss a lot, even if he or she is really fair, it's still an interaction that's based on a transaction, isn't it? Now here's a second person. It's your parent. Let's say you're eight years old and you've been running through the house in a way that your parents have told you not to do, of course, because you might break something. And lo and behold, you break something. And you knock over your mother's favorite vase. And that vase uh, goes shattering everywhere. And there's dirt and plants and broken shards of vase all over the floor. And in the process, you cut your arm. And your mom hears you crying and comes running toward you and looks and sees her favorite vase all over the floor. But her gaze is really fixed on you because you're there with a bleeding arm. And so she takes you in her arms and she bandages you and she wipes your tears and she cares for you and loves you and hugs you and holds you close. Now that's an interaction that is based not on transaction. You actually didn't do anything to earn that love. It's an interaction that's based on relationship. It's something that is based, found, found, uh, founded upon relationship. Now we can sometimes get confused about how we understand who God is. We see God rightfully as one who is powerful, who one who has all authority. We see God rightfully even as the one who forgives sins, but sometimes we can leave the relational component out even as we see good things like that. Uh, the author Michael Reeves in his book Delighting in the Trinity gives this example. He says, okay, think about the way that you relate to a traffic cop. So when you are speeding down the road and the policeman pulls you over and he gives you a ticket, you know you've been speeding, you know you've broken the law, you know that you deserve the punishment. So he gives you a ticket, you are in the wrong, there's that transaction. Now sometimes you're speeding, uh, I mean not that I ever do this, but sometimes you're speeding and you get by the cop and he doesn't see you, right? And you think, wow, that was close. He was right there and I didn't get pulled over. Well, you're feeling pretty good. Maybe you're feeling like you kind of got out, you found a loophole, or you just kind of you know, got out of his view. Maybe he was busy drinking coffee or eating a donut. We don't know. And then there's, of course, even the times where you're speeding and the cop pulls you over and just out of his mercy doesn't give you a ticket. Now, in that case, you feel really grateful. You probably have a lot of gratitude toward that policeman, but you probably still don't ever want to see him again. You have gratitude, but not love. That's sometimes the way that we understand who God is. That He is all authority. And that even in all that authority, there are times that He chooses to forgive us. Now that can create a lot of gratitude in us. And of course, God does have all authority. God is all-powerful. We are those who stand under that authority. And if you're a Christian, He has forgiven you of, his, of your sins. That is true. But we can also fail to put in a component that should be there at the center. And that is relationship. Is that God is described primarily as Father. Before human beings are even created, the Trinity relates together and Jesus has a Father. If God is a Father, then the interaction that we have is based primarily on relationship and not transaction. 
Now, why am I why am I saying all this when we're talking about a passage that's talking about our love for God? It's because of this. Is it, if if we don't start here, we get the whole equation wrong. If we don't start understanding God's incredible love for us, the relationship that we've been brought into with Him as our Father, the amazing, committed, and total, and overflowing love for us shown in Jesus Christ, if we don't start there, we get the whole equation wrong. In fact, that's actually where Jesus starts. It's hard to see it, but that's where Jesus starts. There's a little word that Jesus says, this really important little word. If we go fast, we'll just breeze right over this word, but it's the word, our. Did you hear the way Jesus said it? He said, the Lord, the Lord, our God is one. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's uh, something that the, the Israelites would have called the Shema. It's something they would have said in church every week, probably even in the morning and in the evening every day. Shema Israel, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Echad. The Lord, the Lord our God is one. And that hour there of the Lord our God is really important. Because Deuteronomy is a sermon that Moses preaches right on the precipice of the Jordan River. He's about to bring God's people into the promised land. And on the heels of all of that, the background for all of it is God has rescued us from slavery. God has brought us through the waters of the Red Sea unharmed. We've walked on dry land. And God has brought us into the wilderness in Sinai where He's done something incredible. He's met with us and He has said, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. See, there's a difference, isn't there, between a car and my car. You may not like the difference between a car and your car, but there's a difference. There's a difference between a child and your child. There's a difference between a wife and your wife. There is a difference between a God and our God. And it is our God that we start with. It is our God that is the foundation for everything that follows. So the question that we really want to deal with this morning is, with that in mind... With God's abundant love and mercy in mind, how do we respond? What does it mean then to respond to Him? And what Jesus says here that's just so powerful is that the only way that we respond to a God who has loved us like that is by loving Him in return. Loving Him in a way that is total, that is committed, that is overflowing. Those are the three words actually we're going to use to talk about it this morning. Love that is total, that is committed, and that is overflowing. Here's what I mean by that. When when our love for God is total, what it means is that it actually embraces all that we are. Is that our love for God engages us as whole people. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul. Jesus is saying love for God should engage our intellect, it should engage our emotions, it should engage our wills. Now, we can read that just fine, but the church throughout the centuries has not been really great at doing all three of those things. Think about this. Uh, You may have grown up in a church that was uh, really strong about engaging the Lord with your heart, with your emotions. That taught you to love the Lord is actually to be able to have your emotions engaged. And so because of that, you probably are able to be very free in worship. 
You probably have a very vibrant prayer life where you're able to pour out your love for the Lord in prayer. Your affections for Jesus and for the Father are easily shown in your conversations with Him and with others. But you also may have been told that anything that's intellectually engaged is kind of suspect. Stay away from that. In fact, I, I met somebody the other day who said that, that, that she was told by her pastor, don't go to seminary, that will kill your love for God. Now, some people have had their love for God killed at seminary. But it's not because our intellects are not supposed to be engaged. See, if we divorce our mind and our heart, what you end up with is, is a spirituality and a love that may be really wide but is an inch deep. And you probably also end up with some emotional manipulation going on as well. Now, we can err on the other side of that too, right? You may have grown up in a church that was really strong on loving God as an intellectual engagement. And so you were taught, dig into the Bible. Dig into God's Word and know it intricately. Dig into theology and understand the nuances of it. And study it and and engage your mind in these things. Those are great things, friends. But oftentimes, what was also communicated may have been, oh, and by the way, your emotions, your affections, any of those things, they're kind of suspect. Be careful about that. Because if you start to engage your emotions, then you're starting to walk down the wrong road. And so what we've ended up with is actually love that's not love, it's just academic exercise. Now, okay, let's be honest here. We're Presbyterians. Uh, Have you heard the nickname? The Frozen Chosen? That's us. We've got to own that one. Because so oftentimes, that's what we've done. We've decided, yes, we'll engage our minds. But we'll say, love the Lord your God with all your mind. And we're done. How about our wills? We've oftentimes been been guilty of leaving this one out as well. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your strength. Our will is also engaged in loving God. To set my alarm and to get up with that alarm so that I can have time to spend time in, in the Word and in prayer, that is an act of an engagement of my will and it's an act of love. To commit myself to being in worship is an act of will and it's an act of love. Actually engaging my will to do the things that God has called me to is an act of love. If you go in the New Testament and you read this amazing passage that the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, you've heard it at every wedding that you've ever been to, this incredible description of love. It's all action. Love is primarily action. And for us to love the Lord is an engagement of our wills. Let me just ask you really quickly, where are you prone to leave out? Which one of those are you prone to leave out? Is it the emotions, the intellect, the will? God has loved us as whole people. And He's called us to love Him in return as whole people. Totally. That's the first piece. How about the second word? Committed. That we are called to love the Lord in a committed way. I heard this uh, story about Leonardo da Vinci. I don't know how historically accurate it is, but it's a good story. It was about the painting of the Last Supper. You've seen this painting. It's maybe his most famous, one of his most famous. Incredible, incredible painting that's got Jesus right in the center and he has his arms outstretched and his disciples are around him and they're gathered around this table together. 
And what's beauty, what's beautiful about it is Jesus' amazing outstretched arms. Well, as he was painting this, uh, after the kind of first round, he brought in a friend of his, someone whose opinion he really trusted, and he asked him, what do you think of the painting? And the friend was just effusive in his praise. And then he added this. He said, you know what I really love? He said, what is particularly beautiful is the cup that you've put in Jesus' hand. Amazing job that you did there. And Da Vinci immediately painted it out of the picture. And he said, nothing can distract from the figure of Christ. What is it that distracts you from Jesus? Is there something in your life that you have placed as more primary Maybe it's your goals. <laughs> Maybe it's your relationships. Maybe it's something that's distracting you, uh, like fear or anxiety. Friends, let me remind you that Jesus says to seek the Lord first and all these things that will be added to you. Your goals, your career objectives, those things are okay. But if they're in first place, they're in the wrong place. Jesus says, look how I've clothed the lilies of the field. I'm going to take care of you. Fear and anxiety comes. It's understandable. But if it's taking first place, then it's displacing Jesus. He has called us to make Him first in our lives. I read another story in another book, this really excellent book uh, called The Price of Privilege by Madeline Levine. And she tells the story of, of Steve Largent. You may know Steve Largent played for the, uh, for the Seattle Seahawks. He was a wide receiver. When he retired, he literally held every receiving record in the NFL. He's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He was an exceptionally good football player. Well, he also had a family. Had a teenage son, and at the time, his teenage son, who you could probably guess was also a pretty exceptional athlete, was playing youth baseball. And he was good at it. He was a pitcher, and he had made the all-star team, and he was the starting pitcher in the all-star team for the all-star game. Well, it just so happened that that all-star game was also scheduled during the time that the Largent family was taking their family vacation. Something that was a regular occurrence for them, something that was a tradition, it had been planned for months in advance. And so Steve Largent called the coach just to kind of say, hey, heads up, so thankful you know, for putting my son on the all-star team, just want you to let, let you know we're not going to be there. And the coach kind of went crazy. And he said, what? Are you kidding? It's the all-star game. And of course, Largent's response was, what? Are you kidding? It's my family's vacation. <laughs> See, there was one thing that was primary and everything else was going to take a back seat. That is the way that we are called to love God. To have Him in primary position. And so let me ask again, what is it that you're displacing Him with? Maybe it's youth baseball. Or soccer or football or whatever it is. Maybe, again, it's the endless pursuit for climbing that career ladder. Or maybe it's the endless pursuit for getting into that particular social strata. Or maybe it's this, the ability to say, there's nothing that's going to distract me from having total freedom in my life. From being able to do whatever I want, whenever I want to do it. If anything distracts me from that, then I'm going to keep it out. What is it for you? Is there something that you're placing in your life as primary where Jesus should be? That's what we mean by committed. Here's the third thing. Is that it's overflowing. Is that our love for God is not only supposed to be total, 
all of who we are, committed, primary, but it's also supposed to overflow in us. We looked at this word strength. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that strength is really what we're talking about as an engagement of a will. Now, in Greek, which the New Testament was written in, that word means exactly what you think it means. Strength, power, engagement of a will, that sort of thing. But remember, Jesus is quoting. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy and the rest of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, the word has a little bit of a nuance to it. It actually means more like exuberant, overflowing, abundant. In fact, I looked up this word in, in the most respected Hebrew dictionary. Okay, This is the dictionary that Hebrew scholars go to look up words in. And you know what the first thing in this dictionary, you know what it said? It said, muchness. I was like, muchness? I don't even think that's a word. But it's a great word. Love the Lord your God with much muchness. That is a love that's overflowing, isn't it? It's like you turned on the faucet and plugged up the sink and the water's just going everywhere. It's covering the counter and it's dripping onto the floor and it's spilling out into the rooms. That's the way that our love for God should function. I had a pastor that used to say, the Bible should run through your house like a two-year-old. A two-year-old runs through a house with much muchness. Okay, That is the way that God's love should run through our lives, through our work, through our relationships, through all that we do. It should overflow. It should pour out. Most of you know I'm a big Texas football fan. And in 1998, um, Texas hired Mac Brown. Previous to that uh, was really the desert wasteland of Texas football. During my time in school, the, probably the word that you could use that would describe not only the product on the field, but the fan experience, the best word was, meh. Okay, that was really the way that you would describe Texas football. And if you were a fan, you know, you showed up about midway through the first quarter because there were other better things to do. You had a lot more discussions, you know, about what you were wearing and what your date was wearing than you did about what was happening on the field. You went and got a burger or a sandwich during halftime, came back around mid-third quarter, and then mid-fourth quarter, of course, you needed to beat everybody home, so you left early. Well, when Brown was hired, he came up with this mantra. He knew that in order to fix the product on the field, he also had to fix what was going on in the stands. And so he came up with this mantra that he said over and over and printed on t-shirts and had in advertisements everywhere. And it said this, Come early, be loud, stay late. They would say that all the time. Come early, be loud, stay late. Well, you need that in football, don't you? You need to be able to get there and be ready when the team runs on the field and cheer for them. And, of course, it's football. Like, come on, we can be loud here. Scream and cheer and stay until the end and watch them and cheer for them whether they win or lose. That's a good mantra for a football game. It's also a really good reminder for church. That's a good mantra for us and what it means for our hearts to be engaged in God's Word and in His life and in worship. It's really good for worship. Come early and be ready and prepare your heart. And meet people you haven't met and welcome in guests. Act like you're the host, not a guest. Be loud. Sing. Even if you can't sing, sing. This is a big room with high ceilings. It's hard to hear you from up here. I want to hold my ears, okay? I want to hear you loud and clear. 
And then stick around. You know, it's, there's no traffic. It's Sunday. The, the Baptists aren't going to beat you to all the good restaurants. You can stick around. Hang out for a little while. Come early. Be loud. Stay late. That is love for God that's overflowing. That's exceeding. That is a love that is full of much, muchness. Let me close with this. Uh, Maybe you've heard this phrase before. That that person is so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. Anybody heard that before? Let me just tell you, that is a load of horse manure. That could not be any further from the truth. What Jesus says right after this is that the one who loves God with all that he has, a a love that is overpouring, a love that is totally committed, is actually going to overpour into love for neighbor. That our love for God and our love for our neighbor are actually intertwined. Again, we're going to talk more about this in a couple of weeks. But we need to know that these things are connected. Friends, let me just say, uh, as your pastor, I have seen you do this exceedingly well. It's been so fun to watch your love for the Lord pour out and pour over into loving others, into loving each other, into loving those around you. And all I want you to do right now is simply just to imagine. Imagine what even further commitment, further totality, further overpouring, more muchness, and imagine what that would look like. How would it change your life? How would it change your time? How would it change your money? How would it change your worship? How would it change your community? If our love for the Lord poured over into everything that we did, how would it change us? We're going to spend just a couple of minutes actually asking that question, meditating on it, maybe taking some notes. But before we do, let me pray for us. Lord, we do want to first of all again thank you for the amazing love that you've given to us. Uh, It is love that is um, almost too wonderful for us to get our heads around. (laughs) So we need your help in understanding how much you love us. And Lord, we need your help in loving you in return. In giving you all that we have. All of our heart and mind and soul and strength. All of our intellect. All of our emotion. All of our will. Lord, will you do so in a way that causes it to overflow in us. That it might pour out to others. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.